Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. As always, we're your hosts, Robin Mullins and Keely McCabot. So once again, Nick Bridges is off on an exciting adventure without us, but filling in for him today is our special guest host, Tom Bigelow. So a few facts about Tom. In a previous life, Tom had the opportunity to work with a number of heritage organizations in the Ottawa area, including the Bytown Museum, the Diefenbunker, and the Canada Aviation and Space Museum. Tom also had the chance to assist in developing and presenting a walking tour for the Workers' Heritage Center while completing his MA in Public History from Carleton University. And he's been a lifelong Ottawan, and though his current profession is not directly tied to the heritage sector, he continues to be interested in learning more about and championing the history of Ottawa, if only by subjecting his three-year-old son to endless weekend museum and cultural outings throughout the region. Well, thank you for having me. I, uh, I'm here to replace Nick Bridges. Sadly, I don't know that I can fill his shoes or his beard space. Um, I am quite sad not to see Nick, but uh, again, I will try and do him, him justice in his absence. Well, we're very excited to have you with us. <laughs> Heritage tourism. Some aspects of heritage tourism are more obvious than others. Visiting historic sites or even entire villages, participating in walking tours, haunted or otherwise. But this form of tourism can also extend to shopping districts, the hotel and hostel industry, and more. It's quite likely that you've experienced some form of it yourself, whether it was intentional or not. And here in Canada, we have over 13,000 historic places. So today, we're going to take time and notice the history and heritage in the tourism industry. Listeners may or may not be aware, but cultural tourism has existed since ancient Greece. In 440 BC, Herodotus described people traveling to see the seven miracles of the ancient world. Religious pilgrimages undertaken to the Holy Land and Mecca, among many other sites, are also or can also be seen as cultural tourism. In more modern times, heritage travel was considered part of the nobility's education as early as the 17th century. So this is where you get like the beginnings of finishing school and then going to see the world, but as almost like a, a thing that you had to do. So this leads to the tourism industry, as we know it today, emerging in the 19th century. However, the biggest boom in cultural tourism came in the second half of the 20th century, with the overall rise of education alongside sustained peace. Especially since the 1990s, heritage has become a tourist product with people wanting to experience heritage. Referring to someone as a heritage tourist means that they travel specifically to experience arts, heritage, and culture. This includes visiting or attending museums, galleries, built heritage sites, interpretive centers, festivals, living history sites, natural landscapes, even farmers markets, fairs, or themed events. And something that we can add to that list that we found out about last night mm. are genealogy cruises. Oh. I know. Is that is that kind of like a combination of, you know, you learning about your family and then you actually go to the location where your family comes from? Mostly, yeah. That's what it seems to be. So Ancestry.com right. has just decided to partner with another with a cruise line. And they're going the first one starts, I believe, in England and comes all the way to New York. 
So it's kind of making the voyage that Oh, I see. So it's actually like ancestors. your ancestors coming to, in this case, the New World, for example. Yeah, and so they actually have four genealogists who, from Ancestry.com who will be on the cruise, and they'll be conducting different um, sessions, helping people understand how to do their own genealogies. But something in the article, the article is in the Global Mail, and we will post it in the show notes. Um, but something that I, the article talks about is how they're actually going to pick six crew members and six of the passengers, and then they're going to get them to submit their DNA and a bit of background information before the cruise begins. And then each day they're going to have like a surprise reveal about something cool from their histories, which is so much fun. (laughs) So that's interesting. So they just pick at random or I wonder, do they have access to to other information? I just wonder if they could like cherry pick like, oh, this person's DNA is kind of boring. I wonder if, oh, (laughs) this guy's related to Jack the Ripper. But, you know, I I always wonder about that because uh, obviously with genealogy becoming so popular, you see uh, TV shows about it and they have, you know, celebrities, they do their genealogy and there's always something amazing in Mm -hmm. there. But I wonder, there's got to be some celebrity who just has, you know, an Uncle Bob and that's about the extent of it. So I just wonder how to control that. Exactly. (laughs) Just good quality citizens who did not commit any crimes or involve in any kind of warfare. Where I mean, that's from. the dream, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, just to be mediocre citizens. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be interesting, too, to see if it eventually becomes like a social media trend where it's like, wow, so amazing. My ancestors did this. But it's all yeah. starting with the cruises. Which I think would be a lot of fun. I think so, too. The only downside I can see is if you're on the cruise ship and discover something really terrible about your ancestors, you really can't find much alone time to really deal with it you're kind of stuck <laughs> on a boat with a bunch of people that is true <laughs> but maybe they can help you process it you yeah. know by the pool or if you just find out your family has a, a you know tendency for seasickness that would be a terrible <laughs> thing to discover the power of suggestion <laughs> though <laughs> <There you go. laughs> so the world trade organization claims there's been a recent move towards experiential cultural vacations and educational tourist attractions with 37% of tourists traveling for heritage purposes, which is a much higher number than I ever would have guessed. Yeah, I mean, I think it just goes to speak to the amount of time we have on our hands and uh, how much people want to use selfie sticks. But uh, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it is, it's quite a high number. I would never have thought uh, 37%. That's, that's a large chunk. And uh, I think it speaks to, again, perhaps just a, a growing interest in, in our own kind of uh, history. I mean, tying back to genealogy. But uh, perhaps it's also just a reflection that uh, maybe heritage locations are doing a better job of, of promoting tourism and selling themselves. It's true. I wonder, though, if that number is... I wonder what the demographics of that number are, mm-hmm. because I could see it being mainly the aging population that has that time and also that pension money, um, being able to still travel. You know, They're still young when they retire, and they might have more of an interest than millennials may have. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested to see if that number will grow or shrink in the coming decades. In Canada, there are over 13,000 historic places. So here, where we live, there's great potential for this sort of upward swing in tourism. And we've all experienced it, I think, as we've spoken before. You know, we're all part of that, I guess, growing industry or that continuing industry, rather. And heritage tourism benefits the economy, which is good for everybody as heritage tourists tend to stay longer and spend more money when they visit. With aging populations, as you mentioned, Robin, in the Western world, these trends are predicted to increase. So coming to Canada, um, heritage tourists are predominantly Americans, Canadians, Europeans, and Asians. 
So in 2010, 2.6 million Canadians identified themselves as heritage tourists. In 2004 and 2005, 53% of American tourists to Canada visited museums, historical sites, and art galleries. In the same study, one-fifth of American and Canadian tourists traveled specifically for culture and entertainment purposes alone. That is impressive. But I wonder, though, I mean, we're throwing out terms like heritage tourist, and uh, these are individuals who are self-identifying. I'll be interested to see how they define heritage tourists or definitions are provided to them. Uh, you know, heritage can, can mean so very much. And to say that you're participating or traveling for, for cultural purposes, well, you could be going to a, a historic site, but you could also simply be skating on the canal with a, a beaver tail. You know, That's that, true. That, that could be mm-hmm. construed as, as cultural, uh, depending who you are and, and, uh, and again, how you, you view those those terms. So I do agree there are large, uh, large percentages and very impressive numbers. But again, we're throwing around terms that perhaps... You know, these people have, have very defined or different uh, definitions, I should say, uh, about what they are. So, Tom, as we mentioned in the bio for you at the top, you have quite a bit of experience in actually developing walking tours. I would say a walking tour. A walking tour. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting experience. And uh, I was part of a team to do it, so I certainly can't take all the credit. But it, it was uh, quite uh, an education in many forms, not only in terms of kind of learning some of the content uh, while we were working on it, but also just in terms of you know, trying to figure out you know, what should we get into, how much detail, how important is accuracy, um, what kind of questions will be thrown our way, mm-hmm. how engaged will the individuals actually be. Uh, and it was also kind of just neat to be out of the, out of the classroom. I was a grad student when we actually did this. And uh, even out, out of a museum, um, to be kind of walking the streets of, of Ottawa, um, talking about its history to people, pointing out certain aspects of it. But perhaps the most fascinating part about the whole process, and this was uh, developing a walking tour specifically about the labor history of Ottawa, was kind of turning the history on its head a bit. Because our focus were, in large part, actually, the, the landmark locations you would think in Ottawa as historic places. Parliament Hill, Rideau Canal... But the stories we were telling were, were very different than the narrative that you, you would usually get when you go to those, those places. You know, we were just talking about Confederation uh, or you know, the building of the canal and, and all that uh, malaria. But um, although that, that came into it as well, of course. <laughs> uh, but no, we were talking about it from, from a labor history point of view and from an industrial point of view and from a working class point of view. Uh, so I think it was kind of interesting for the participants. Um, you know, we did this uh, tour specifically at one point during a uh, conference that was happening here in Ottawa uh, to kind of talk to them about these these places and to paint them in a different light. And I think that was kind of revealing uh, kind of a bit of an alternate history or just simply social history, if you will, but perhaps a narrative that you don't always think of when you take a you know, heritage tourism. You don't necessarily go to, to kind of learn some of the not-so-pretty aspects of the town's history. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of cool to, to be able to present that, that side of the story as well. It's something about walking tours that I find very engaging is the fact that you have built history and you kind of have the major narrative, particularly when you're dealing with a capital city or like mm-hmm. a major landmark. Things like walking tours are almost like interjections that allow you to, as you say, discuss the different aspects of history maybe the negative aspects of history or even just history that isn't being represented when you're looking around and seeing it it's a really good tool for in a way activism as well which i think is really engaging yeah and i, and I think these these truths hold true as you suggest in any kind of urban setting and i'm sure elsewhere as well 
But I do think that Ottawa is a, is a pretty interesting case study uh, because I think if, if you polled many Canadians or, or tourists or, or people abroad who even know what Ottawa is or where Ottawa is, they would label it as a, as a pretty bland city. And I think a lot of local residents feel the same way. And I think it's kind of neat when you can remind people that, you know what, the history of this place, just like the history of many places, is pretty messy. And in that messiness is a lot of fascinating truths and, and mistruths as well. Um, so when you can kind of reflect on that and perhaps share some lesser-known versions of, of history, even to locals, that give them a new perspective or, again, perhaps just greater appreciation for the place they live in, I think it's pretty cool. You know, again, it's not always a pleasant story or a pretty story, but at the end of the day, hopefully you've you've kind of exchanged some, some knowledge. Uh, you might not remember everything, but again, hopefully they leave a different look of, of, of how they see their, their hometown and or the place you're visiting. There's something about the act of walking as well that I find very engaging when you're moving your body through a space. Mm -hmm. When I was living in South Africa, I lived next to District 6. I lived in the neighborhood right next to the big open space. So I passed it every day on my way to work and I knew what it was, but I there's nothing really there. It's still empty. And I actually found these walking tours that follow the GPS in your phone. So you put your your earbuds in and it took you through kind of apartheid history in Cape Town and it ends at District 6. So I basically kind of did it on my way home from work one day. And it was alone, so it's not the same as when you're you have a guide and you're speaking to other people. It's a very solitary experience, but I found it very powerful. There was a lot of spoken word poetry in it and a lot of historical facts and it's just amazing what technology is kind of kind of allowing people to experience in historical spaces and built heritage in the sense that it's not physically built, but in like, a, I guess like soundscapes and things like that. Mm -hmm. And also with walking, not only is it physically moving you through the space, but it's causing you to have to spend a, a longer amount of time than you naturally would. I've also been on other types of tours where you drive around and you, you know, you know if you're in a bus tour or even tours with just people and friends who are taking me around a city and it's still very enriching, but it's done, it's not the same. You don't get to pause and really take things in and see buildings from different angles and have the time to kind of reflect as you're moving to the next spot the way that you do when you're walking through something. And it really does, I think, help it to become more immersive, both physically but also mentally. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And, and Keely, back to your point about technology, I've not heard of that that kind of use of uh, you know GPS and, and taking a walking tour on your own using a device like that, but it's quite refreshing to think that you know, technology is almost making the experience more personal in that mm -hmm. sense, giving you time to reflect on your own and not to be ushered on to the next uh, point or the next stop. You know, not to say there's not something to be said about again experiencing these things as a group and then having someone guide you uh, personally, but uh, to be able to actually have that moment to yourself. Um, I think that's, as you say, quite powerful. And the fact that technology is, is what's kind of allowing that, that personal interaction with the space one-on-one, -on -one, that I think that kind of speaks to the, the pros that technology sometimes can have, even outside of museums where you know, we do see it sometimes uh, have pros and cons as well. Absolutely. Yeah, when we were, we were in Athens and we visited the Parthenon, and it is massive, and it is also packed full of people. And you can do tours, but you have to usually pay money to get a specialized tour. And also, just there's thousands of people. We got there first thing in the morning to beat the heat, but also the crowds. And within a half an hour, there were there must have been thousands of people on this very small rock space. Um, 
But my husband had actually downloaded for us each uh, a version of the Lonely Planets uh, walking tours that they have. So there are so many walking tours of almost any place you can imagine. And they're really great because they actually build in time for you to stop and take something in. So you can pause it if you would like longer or you can speed it up if you'd like to go a little bit faster than the pace that's provided. But it was nice how it actually made you stop and it said like, okay, stop here, look around. And it gave you, you know, the the 15 or 30 seconds that you needed to actually take in the site around you and maybe negotiate around the crowd of tourists that just came into your field of view. Um, but it was a really nice way of interacting with the space around us. So yeah, tours of all kinds. Yeah. Well, I think again, that just speaks to the, the dual role that technology can play. Often you see tourists walking around with their, their smartphones and their cameras and it's almost blocking their actual interaction with the, the, the space. You know, they're too busy taking a photo and not taking enough time to actually immerse themselves. But in this case, technology is playing a, a dual role in order to, to actually facilitate that as well. So again, it's all, all about how you use the tools, I guess, that are put at the disposal. But it's uh, kind of nice to hear that perhaps there's some effective uses and, of course, some distracting uses to technology when we're talking about heritage tourism and walking tours in particular. I think there's always going to be that need for heritage to well, anything really, but history to kind of almost have a pull in like anything else, like something to catch your attention. So that might be technology. There's this thing called museum hacks, which personally, I I could talk about how much I dislike that forever. But their whole thing is like bachelor party themed, go to the museum and stuff like that. So using like these hooks to get people to engage in heritage and culture, I think it does, it is effective. I don't like museum hacks myself, but like as an example... <laughs> But as far as walking tours goes, one way that a lot of people get brought into spaces is through haunted walks and haunted heritage. A lot of heritage sites actually do often play into that as well. And they will cite or reference, if only on their website, but perhaps also in their exhibits, uh, you know, a history or story about paranormal activity, perhaps a previous resident of a home or someone who's worked there before. Uh, you know, in my experience working in some museums in the Ottawa area, I've seen that quite a bit. And it is indeed a draw. Um, so it's, it's really not uh, reserved to walking tours, but to heritage sites in, in general. And as Keely mentioned, sometimes maybe that's, that's the pool that gets people in the door. There's a, my family comes from this small town called Wallet, well, Port Lambton, but it's the next biggest, smallest town nearby is called Wallaceburg. And I hope the, that's their motto, the motto. That's the motto. The sign when you get there. The next biggest, smallest town. <laughs> and there's a, a museum there for Wallaceburg and the surrounding areas. And one of the big myths from pioneer times in Wallaceburg and around Port Lambton as well was this thing called the Baldoon Mystery, where apparently there was a witch and she cast a spell on the pioneers and they had to kill a like a goose that was black that flew out of the water. And it's like oh. this big story. And it's like really well documented, which is really interesting. So you go to this museum and it's a industry town. So there's a bunch of history about glass blowing. But then you go into this basement room and they've developed this haunted room. So it there's it's dark. But you can tell that there's a room in front of you and you press a red button on the wall and this rocking chair starts going and all these lights start flashing. I like and how you have to start it. It's haunting. It's amazing. Yeah. I love it so much. And like, you wake it up. Yeah. You have to be like, and then it t- like there's a little like, thing on the wall to tell you the story. And it's all volunteer run. And they put this together themselves. And I love it. But I love it. a goose? There is a goose. <laughs> Not a real one. <laughs> it just waits in the corner. <laughs> it's yeah, really well trained. You have to poke the goose with a stick and yeah. then it will fly out. <laughs> but it's like things like that where 
it's a legend, right? So mm-hmm. you're going into this museum with a lot of historical facts and, you know, old photographs, but like you're walking kind of fast because you're like, the goose part's coming. I'm so excited. <laughs> and so I think it definitely does, it is a very effective draw. Absolutely. I think as, as historians, we, we might question, uh, you know, these, these uh, additions to museums or heritage sites, but I don't think you can question. As you suggested, Keely, you know, legends, sometimes they, they're very important to communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there certainly is, is a space for that, where that space is. Maybe not always in the basement of a museum, I don't know. But uh, obviously it's an it's important part of certain communities' culture and, and their heritage. So if that's what it takes to get uh, feet in the door and uh, people pressing a button, why not? Absolutely. We'll always draw in our co-producer of the podcast, Emily Cuggy, because she loves anything haunted. She loves scary stories. She loves haunted buildings. She's always hoping that there will be a haunting in any building that we visit. Uh, so she, I'm sure she will visit that museum, Keely. You gotta go. We can drive up. <laughs> I can I can speak with some experience uh, to working in a museum and, and having um, visitors actually come in for the sole purpose of trying to have a, a paranormal sighting. And uh, I was uh, working briefly with the, the Bytown Museum here in Ottawa. Uh, it was a very uh, short stint, but... Uh, uh, memorable, uh, not least because uh, we did have uh, some American tourists who came up uh, one weekend and uh, were asking me all kinds of questions about paranormal activity in the building. And uh, I think I'd have been working there for a few weeks and I'd come across some literature about uh, uh, perhaps a ghost that, that kind of lived in, in the building or lived in a certain aspect or a room, I should say, of the building. Uh, so I, I played along and uh, shared that, that history, that story uh, that was on file of uh, different sightings. Uh, but personally, myself, didn't really pay much mind or, or put much merit into it. That said, the, the guests uh, enjoy their stay and, and uh, you know, spend quite a bit of time uh, roaming the museum, taking photos, and they left. The next day, I opened up the museum on a, on a Sunday morning, and the first person in the door was uh, the father who had been with the group. And he simply came in, and uh, he, he slid in front of me on the desk a photo he had taken in one of the rooms, and it was of his son. And just above his son's shoulder was a little fleck, a little, perhaps a piece of light, a piece of fluff, I'm not too sure. But without saying a word, he just slid in front of me and looked, waiting for some kind of <laughs> acknowledgement. All I could say was, yep, that's, that's cool, man. There is a fleck in that and, photo. <laughs> uh, and that, that's all it took. He left with uh, a great deal of pride. But uh, obviously, you know, we had uh, people coming all the way from the States to visit the museum in hopes of having that kind of encounter mm-hmm. or... And, uh, you know, hey, it, it got him in the door, and I wouldn't be surprised if he went back. Um, you know, it was probably a, the most memorable, memorable part of his, his family's tourist experience in the Ottawa area. And uh, is that so bad? I, I don't know. But uh, it, it certainly is a draw. And I know it's a story that, uh, again, these, these paranormal stories that, that do often uh, prevail and uh, exist in these Heritage Sites uh, promotions. I think it's interesting with your story about the Bytown Museum and people visiting looking for paranormal activities or experiences because, I mean, that's, I think, the bread and butter of the Ottawa Hostel being in the old jail. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've not visited myself yet, but uh, obviously they've been in operation now for quite some time and it's a, it's a big draw for people to be able to, to sleep in, in the jail cells of previous murderers and, and, and uh, uh, unsavory folk. So, yeah, again, there's, there's certainly a, a heritage and, and history part of the story, but, you know, if you can add in a bit of entertainment and uh, scandal, you know, if that's what it takes, so be it. 
I myself have actually slept at the Ottawa hostel. Uh, before I moved to Ottawa, my dad and I came to town and we came to Ottawa and we stayed there and it was it was pretty interesting. It had a lot of novelty to it. We didn't stay there because because of any hauntings. We just stayed there because it was cheap and it was close to downtown and was an interesting experience. Um, and then again, last year, I was touring across New Zealand and staying in various different hostels. And they also had a jail that had been converted into a hostel. And that one was a much more uh, up-to-date jail. So it felt more like it was from the mid-20th century. It looked a lot like the interior of the Shawshank Redemption prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would have like the giant... You didn't, Instead of having the barred doors that you could close and still see through them, which was the way that the room at the Ottawa hostel was for me, at the one in New Zealand, it was just a full metal door with like the tiny little slat that you could pull across to see out. Um, and you had to like bolt yourself in and it was, it was bunk beds. <laughs> it was very romantic. <laughs> and you had to go up and use the shared washrooms like for all the inmates. So it was... <laughs> I was going to say, when you brought up the Shawshank Redemption, I just said, hopefully you didn't use the showers. But, uh... I did not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I waited till the next day's hostel. <laughs> But I wonder, when they market that hostel there, is there any component to it that's, you know, of the unsavory variety? Or is it just the, the experience of being able to stay in a, a form of prison? It was more the prison aspect. Uh, they actually had some mannequins set up in the lobby wearing, you know, the striped uniforms of old time <laughs> cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> and they had, you know, like the the chain with the like the ball the ball and chain attached to like the ankle and just all the the really obvious on the nose kind of references to prisons and jail time holding a bag with a big dollar sign on it yeah (laughs) um but it was really nice it was a really beautiful very well kept uh hostel and it was interesting to be able to contrast it with the other jail hostel experience that I've had in Ottawa. So maybe that's my new tourism thing, staying in converted jails. You found your niche. Yes, I have. I hope your honeymoon was not one at uh, these locations. (laughs) Thankfully, no. (laughs) (laughs) We've kind of scratched the surface here really with heritage sites and heritage tourism, not just in Canada, but internationally. It's a huge, it's like the scope is amazing of all the different kinds of sites and the different levels of tourism. We got into the walking tours, which I think we did need to linger there as long as we did, just because they play such a large role. Hopefully this has encouraged some of you listening to go and see what walking tours and other historical sites are around you that you can participate in. I know that it's making me think a lot more of what's going on here in Ottawa. And which jails you can stay at overnight. <laughs> the many jails that you can visit and stay at. <laughs> Robin, you're starting to freak me out a little bit. <laughs> We've also covered kind of the ooky spooky side of heritage as well. Um, In the future, we're going to be able to expand on this topic a lot more. Hopefully, Tom, you will come back and visit us sometime if you'd like. And there's a lot to unpack here, so I'm pretty excited about the possibilities. It all depends on Nick, really. I mean, we might be establishing a pokeroo situation here where I cannot be in the room at the same time. (laughs) And for anyone from not from Ontario, I apologize but uh, do look up Pokeroo because I feel like that might be a future episode. Heritage is undoubtedly part of what makes places appealing to travelers, and it can also be the main purpose for traveling in the first place, as we've discussed. By playing off of people's desire to explore, enrich themselves, and learning something new, heritage tourism may be the means to provide economic benefits to Ontario, alongside with offering cultural tourists a satisfying experience, or Canada more generally. 
and now you're in the know. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers were Kirsty Walker, Sarah Wilmshurst, Nick Bridges, and Kirsten Stewart, with audio mixing by Emily Cuggy and myself. For more information about the topics we covered today, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at nohistory.ca, or you can find us on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.